Joshua chapter 9. Lord, open your word to us this morning to see what your spirit is saying to the church today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan and the hills and then the lowlands and in all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. And so now the kings are getting together, these great, incredible countries with all their chariots and all their giants and all their spears and all their men of war. And one man, they're going to come out and fight against the Lord and against God's plan. God said, I'm going to give this land to you. They're saying, no way. God said, I'm driving these people out. And God says, and these people are saying, no, we're not going. So they're categorically opposed to God and to God's plan for his own people. Peter said, watch out for Satan. He's like a roaring lion waiting to see whom he can devour. And here we see Satan come with this frontal attack is this giant lion, loud, thunderous, scary, big, strong. And we're looking at him going, oh my goodness, the enemy is getting together against us. It's always the case. Interesting, the Bible tells us that Herod and Pilate didn't like each other until Jesus Jesus's trial, until they were going to crucify Jesus. And they so got together on crucifying Jesus that after that, they remain good friends. Interesting how the people of Satan become buddies over fighting against God and his plan. These nations hated each other, but all of a sudden they're together when it comes to fighting against the Lord. And so we see that strategy of the devil to try to just come up and overpower you with just pure strength. The Bible says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, that you could stand against the devil in that evil day. Satan does come up sometimes just right in your face and just, just like he did with Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And you're just looking at it going, that's nuts. Jesus isn't going to bow down and worship you. And you know, Aren't you smarter than that devil? But the fact is that sometimes it works. Satan will just come and say, Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you sex that you haven't been getting. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you drugs that you didn't even know existed. Bow down and worship me, and it's, it's illegal, but you'll make more money in this one instant than you would in the next five years, and you won't get caught. Come on and do it. And you, here you are, being a thief, being an adulterer, a fornicator, or, or being this totally immoral person that you thought you wouldn't be, but you are. Because Satan, just by pure strength, drag you in to that old life of sin. Now, if you're walking strong in the Lord, that frontal attack won't work. You'll just say, be gone, Satan, and he'll leave until a more opportune time. But if he's got you at a time where you're weakened, you've gone through several different attacks, or uh, there's some things that are unraveling in your life and you're weak, you're in a weakened state, sometimes that frontal attack will work. And that's why the Bible says we need each other. We strengthen one another. 
why it's called day. And so we can see when that attack is coming and we can stand by each other and help each other out so we don't fall. But Satan has another scheme far more destructive. And we see that in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done in Jericho and Ai, and they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys and old wine skins torn and mended, old patched sandals on their feet, and the old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. Now, Satan is a deceiver. He's the father of all lies. He always comes to deceive. And it's no big deal for him to plot and to plan to deceive you. And so here they are, going through this incredible extent to appear as if they've come from several months' journey, when in reality they're just about a three-day journey away. And so what happens here is that Satan is approaching at the front door with this roaring lion waiting to see whom he can devour. But you've got to remember he's also that serpent. He doesn't open wide the back door. He just cracks it open a tiny, tiny bit and slithers in. Remember there in Genesis, it says that Satan came as the most beautiful of all creatures. And then he struck up a conversation with Eve. And here he's going to strike up a conversation with these guys. Look at verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell amongst us, so how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where are you come from? And they said to him, From a very far country from your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did in the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan to Sion king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who was at Ashtoreth. Notice that they very cunningly leave out about Jericho and Ai because that would have let on that they were closer by. But if they were a long distance away, they wouldn't have known about Jericho and Ai. So they very clear, cleverly left out those last two battles. And in verse 11, Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot out of our provisions from the houses on the day that we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled with new... And see, they are torn, and these are our garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. What was the first mistake, first mistake the children of Israel made here? Talking to the enemy. If you don't ever talk to them, you're not going to be deceived by them. Just like Eve, her first mistake is that she struck up a conversation with the devil. Good idea not to be talking to him to begin with. Now, if they just didn't talk to them, they never would have been swayed by them. Their first reaction when they saw these guys is, 
you're probably from nearby. You're probably just right over the hill. That's where we think you're probably from. And they were absolutely right. God was giving them discernment. God was giving them his wisdom. But then they listened to the enemy. And as they listened to the enemy, he's able to change their minds from what the truth is to a lie, from what is obvious to a deception. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you watch. It does indeed affect you. I know in the books that I've read on debating, one of the clear ways to win a debate is simply talk more than your opponent. (laughs) If you ever have been to a debate, write to the second. They don't have any more time than the other guy. You get a half an hour, they get a half an hour. You get five minutes, they get five minutes. You get another half an hour, they get another half an hour. It's exactly right to the T. Why? Because even if you have a minute or two longer to talk, you can often win the argument, even if it's a ridiculous argument, you can win just because you can sway the people by having said more words than the other people. It makes it, it works. And so if you let Satan get his ideas, get his thoughts, get his words, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how big of a lie, no matter how great the deception, there are the percentage of people that will be swayed just by the many words that he's spoken. Be careful. Don't be talking to the enemy. Don't let him get that foothold in. Don't let him get that opportunity to get in to deceive. The Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company will corrupt good morals. And that bad company may be your TV or your radio or a movie. Or it may be somebody at work you're hanging out with, somebody at school. But be careful. You don't be deceived. What you hang out with is what you're going to be like. What you listen to is what you're eventually going to believe. Even if it's ridiculous, even if it's a lie, even if it's deception, it'll start sounding like truth after a while. In Romans 13, it says, Don't make any opportunities for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Don't give the opportunity. If these people, when they saw the enemy coming, would have immediately treated them like an enemy... They never could have even begun their deception. It never would have worked to begin with. So don't make that opportunity that Satan could take an advantage of you. Where does Satan put his energies? Where is Satan attacking right now? Is he attacking the guys down at the bars getting drunk? No, he's already got them. He's on their wide road leading to destruction. There's a way that seems right into a man... And it's seeming right to them to be down there, but the end of that road is destruction. Why put any more ammunition? Why put any more energy? Why put any demons on people that are already deceived and already got their lives into a tailspin of destruction? Is Satan attacking that person who's a couch potato as the average American now listens to six and a half hours of TV a day? Is he there attacking? No. A couple of hard copies, a little bit of journal, a little dateline, a couple of sitcoms. He's thinking exactly like the devil's thinking. There's no need to try to sway that guy. He's already swayed. He's made an opportunity for a flesh. Bad, bad company has already corrupted his good morals. Why bother him? Where does Satan live? 
Turn over to Matthew 13, if you would. Matthew 13, verse 31. This is an important concept for us to understand within the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 13, there in verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. What's the kingdom of heaven like? First of all, the smallest of seeds they had at that time in their area of the world, the smallest of seeds that produced life was the mustard seed. And he said, you take this tiny, 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 tiny little thing and you put it in the ground. And over in Israel, their, their soil is so fertile that they don't just get mustard seed plants like we get here. They become giant bushes, tree-like. They're so big. And what happens? The birds of the air come and nest. Now, the parable right before this was about the farmer who went out and sowed seeds. And in Mark chapter 4, he says, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand the rest of the parables I'm telling you? Now, in that first parable, the seed fell on the road and the birds came down and ate up the seeds. And Jesus clearly said the birds was the devil who came and stole away the seed out of their heart before it had any opportunity to germinate. Who are the birds that come and nest in the mustard seed? It's Satan. You see, the church looks far bigger than it really is. If you could find those true believers, it would be a much smaller little bush. But it looks gigantic because there's all of these other people that aren't really following God, aren't really serving God. They come to church for a smidred of reasons, but they're here. Now, where does Satan live? Right in the midst of us. He's the only person who's had perfect attendance the last 13 years that we've been here as a church. He pays attention. He watches those who aren't worshiping the Lord, who really are distracted and not hearing the word of God preached, and he doesn't really bother you. Why should he? You're already distracted. You're not going to bear fruit. But he observes those people who are truly worshiping the Lord and are attentive to the word of God that is possibly reaching into their hearts, and he follows you home. Peter said, don't think it's some strange thing when the fiery trial tries you. But we often do freak out, going, man, what slithered into my house this last week? What is going on? I don't understand this. What's happening? Why? Why? Hey, we're in a spiritual battle. There is a real devil who is really in the midst of us, going home to try to weird us out with his weird ways. He's a freaky, strange, weird guy. And that's exactly the way he wants you to feel. As bizarre and weird as he is, he wants you to feel that same way. And he's going to do everything he can to tweak your home, to mess with your life and your brain and your children and your parents. And your, he'll do anything he can to weird you out. That's just the way he is. And so we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, as he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, that he should take an advantage of us. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. 
We know exactly how Satan is thinking. We know exactly what he's up to. He's right here in the midst of us today. And he doesn't appreciate me telling you that. And so, he's probably going to put a couple extra demons to beat me up this week. Also look there at verse 31, or 33, excuse me. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in the three measures of meal till it was leavened. And so you take this little piece of unleavened about the size of a pebble and put it in to the loaf and it poofs out and becomes big again. It's a lot of air now trapped within the loaf of bread. It's not as big in substance as it appears. But why? Why does it look bigger than it really is? Because of that leaven. And so we have to realize that Satan is planting the leaven within the church. He's going to puff it up, looking bigger than it really is. Why? Because there's a lot of space. There's people that aren't true believers, that aren't truly following the Lord. Remember there when Satan appeared before God with all the other angels, and they talked about Job. And he said, oh, let me attack Job, and he'll curse you. And God gave him permission to attack Job. In other words, let's find out if he's really a believer or not. Now, Job, when he was attacked, was found out he was really a believer. He said, naked I came in this world, naked I go out. Praise be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Is it right for us to only receive good from God and not be willing to receive evil? He had a heart of total trust in God no matter what the circumstances. But a lot of people, when that conversation comes about, they are not a true believer. And they're like that big, giant Easter bunny. It looks like a big, solid block of chocolate, you know. You're looking at that going, man, first I'm going to nibble on the ear Monday and Tuesday, you know, and the other ear, you know, Wednesday and Thursday, and then his head's going to be gone by Saturday, and man, this... And you take this thing home, and you bite into it, and it crumbles. It's just a thin little layer of chocolate with the... It's all air inside. It's all hollow. There's a lot of people that look like Christians on the outside. They look pretty solid. But they're not. And when the attack of the enemy comes, it'll be found out that all they had was a little tiny bit of shell of Christianity. In reality, they were not a believer at all. Now, we know that. We understand the devil lives here at church. We understand that not everybody who appears as a Christian is really a Christian. Satan takes on different forms within the church. The Bible says that if Satan appears as an angel of light, how much more the false prophets and the false teachers will appear as light. In other words, their first view, it looks like they're of truth. But in reality, they're of a lie. And so you have those people that show up in the church as a mature Christian. And they've got their act together. And they'll work their way in to influencing as many people as they can. And then in reality... They're not followers of God. And they begin to murmur or complain. And they get other people murmuring and complaining. And they'll do everything they can to cause as many people as they can to be stumbled and have their heart hardened against the church and against other Christians and, and try to divide and conquer. 
to try to bring a lack of unity among the brethren, to take away that spirit of love and that spirit of forgiveness and try to put in a spirit of criticism and try to put a spirit of division in. You also see those people that are just wolves. They come in and they're just scamming. You see the guy trying to get the girl and just he's just trying to get her off into bed, trying to get her away. His, his intentions isn't to see her strengthen the Lord. His intentions is to try to find a wife or to find some gal that will jump in the, be, in the bed with him. That's all his intentions are. But yet he'll do it as he appears to try to be a Christian, justifying what he's doing. You see also those people that show up as a big giant counseling problem. And they're talking to everybody and to every, oh, I have this problem and I have this need and this difficulty and that. And before you know it, they're getting counsel with 50 different people in the church. Everybody just trying to figure out how can things be so bad? I don't understand why, you know, what, why things are so wrong with this person. And they're like this little tornado and they're saying, come here and whoosh, they bring them in and they suck you in and you're spun around. They grab another and, whoosh, and then uh, somebody goes flying off this way, another person flying off that way. And, and they're just like a little tornado in the church, distracting everybody from their own walk with the Lord, distracting everybody from doing what God's showing them to do because they're so preoccupied with this particular problem or person and all their neediness. And I'm not saying there's not people with genuine needs that we need to help. I'm just saying that this is one of Satan's schemes to try to distract people. Look on there in Matthew chapter 13, verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and he said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seeds are on the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The, the son of man will send out his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, all things that are offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. And down in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into the vessel, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among, notice this, from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. And so we understand that Satan has come and he's planted his weeds right next to the wheat. Now, our first thought is, what will the Lord do? He'll just start weeding, man. <laughs> just start pulling all the weeds out. And the answer is no. He won't do that. He lets the good grain grow up the best it can in amongst the weeds. That's the kingdom of God's principles. And we have to fight against the weeds. As they're trying to wrap themselves around underneath, we have to fight against them. We have to just live next to them. Now, we also need to not be deceived by them. Often you have a person who's not as mature in the Lord and they see this other mature Christian and they're going, wow, you know, it doesn't seem scriptural the way they're living. It seems unscriptural. But this mature Christian seems to have a verse and a, a justification for how they're living. 
And you go, wow, they must know. Because they're this mature Christian. No, they're an old, mature weed. <laughs> they're there to deceive you. They may be big. They may look healthy. They may have the right color green. But they're a weed. And they've been growing amongst the church for a long time. Get your eyes on Jesus. Well, this leader, he has this certain lifestyle. It doesn't seem scrupulous, and he has his attitude, but he justifies his attitude. I don't care if he's a leader in the church. He can be a weed planted there by the enemy. Well, what's the answer? The answer is, that's just the way it is. There's non-believers amongst the believers. There's deceivers amongst those who are wanting to walk in truth. There's leaders that shouldn't be leaders, and there's people amongst us that shouldn't be amongst us. They're not true followers of God. What's the answer? In God's timing, he's going to deal with it. Until then, we've got to deal with it. How do we deal with it? Keep our eyes on the Lord and realize it's reality. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices that he should take advantage of us. So people say, well, I don't want to go to that church. There's a bunch of hypocrites down there. Of course there is. Satan's put them there. And not only that, <laughs> there's a bunch of demoniacs down there. And Satan put those people there as well. Remember Paul there in the book of Acts. as him and Barnabas were trying to preach the gospel. And that woman came up. And she began to tell everybody, listen to these men. Listen to the men, these men. They're of God. And they're bringing to us the word from God. Listen, everybody. This went on for three days. And then finally, Paul discerned, this woman has a demon in her. And he cast the demon out of her. Now, did she lie? No, everything she said was truth. She was trying to be the most obnoxious pseudo-believer, trying to appear like the most on-fire Christian. In reality, she was just trying to be as obnoxious as she could. That was Satan's scheme, to be the most obnoxious, pretending believer that she could be to cause people to say, yuck, those guys are goofy because that follower of, her, of theirs is goofy. And that was just all a part of Satan's plan. Get the most obnoxious, goofy person you can and make them as loud and obnoxious as you can. And that in and of itself will keep people from listening to the gospel. And it worked for three days until they discerned that this was one of the schemes of the enemy and cast the demon out of the girl. And then she did become a true believer. Well, turning back over to Joshua, the second mistake they made, first of all, you just got to be at the right place at the right time. Don't be around the devil at all. And don't be listening to the devil. Don't be talking to the devil. There's enough of his influence in the church. We don't need to go looking for it out in the world. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. We've got to realize we're in a battle. There's that lying attack from the front. There's the slithering deception from the back. And there we see the second problem in verse 14 is they did not ask counsel of the Lord. They saw it with their own eyes. Why talk to God about it? It was clear to them. We saw their clothes. They were wore out. We saw their poor donkey. It looked like it was ready to die. We saw their moldy bread. It's clear that they couldn't have been around the corner. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that these guys would go to this extent to deceive us. Believe it. It's true. People often have a hard time to believe how deceptive Satan is. Satan may plot and plan over a five-year period to bring you down. 
And you're thinking, oh, well, you know, how, he would have had to start it five years ago. He did. He would have had to work out this circumstance and that circumstance, and he did. Believe it. Satan is as deceptive and as bizarre as you can imagine. And so these guys, the extent they went to, putting on these old clothes, finding an old donkey, finding some old moldy bread in town, and some old wineskins, and they did all of this. It's hard to believe. And they're just looking at it going, nobody would go to this extent to deceive us. We are not ignorant of his devices, that he should take an advantage of us. They were ignorant, not realizing how the devil schemes and plots and plans to bring us down. And their problem was is they didn't ask counsel from the Lord. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 3, if you would. Look there, at starting in verse 5. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And notice this, lean not on your own understanding, even if it seems totally obvious to you. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, in your own opinion. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. God wants to direct your path. He wants to give you, in the Hebrew, literally, it's a smooth path or a straight, smooth path. That's what the Lord wants to give you. But you can't be wise in your own understanding. You can't say, well, I'm a businessman. I already have it all figured out. Well, this is my third kid. I already know how it works. I've been married 10 years. I know how it don't be wise in your own understanding. Get on your face and seek the Lord. The Bible says only as He abides in us and we abide in His Word, then we will bear fruit. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. The best thing you can do for yourself is believe that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, I'm not sufficient of myself as thinking anything as coming from myself. But my sufficiency is from Christ. That we would all be that very poor in spirit. Now God in His grace normally gives us a wake-up call before we start making that decision that heads us downward in a really fast way. You see, some of you have not been seeking God. You've been living life in your own understanding. You're saying, hey, so far I've fared pretty well. And that may be the case. I can't say that, boy, you better start right now. Everything's going to fall apart tomorrow. That's not necessarily the case. You can be a carnal person, not seeking the face of God, not hearing from God, and actually have a couple of decades or more where things are fine. But I guarantee you there will come that day. And in that day, you wake up and you had no idea that your life was getting ready to spin downhill in a very fast way. But there was that hour, and there was that minute, and there was that 30-second conversation that you should have never had. How many marriages have been ruined with a conversation they should have never begun with? How many people enemy one last time, and it was enough to bring them down completely? There will come that day when that evil day comes, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, having done all to stand, you may be able to stand or survive, make it through it. Some of you, right up front, may have had horrible things happen because you didn't wait on the Lord. I'd say that's God's grace. See, God already began warning Joshua ahead of time. 
He's there as he enters into the promised land. He's looking at Jericho, trying to figure it out. And there's the Lord in a soldier outfit with his sword drawn against Joshua. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? He says, no, but I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And he bowed down and he worshiped. God was angry with Joshua. And he was saying, Joshua, stop it. I'm the commander, not you. And you're against me because you're trying to work it out in your own strength and your own self-sufficiency instead of listening to me. You should have been seeking me, but I've had to appear against you to say, wake up, you need to be seeking me and listen to my direction. That was a wake-up call. And you remember the incredible success they had at Jericho. How they walked around and the whole walls came tumbling down and they, without a sweat, won the battle. And But the very next time, AI, the two spies come back going, oh, it's a little village, no big deal. Send 3,000 guys up there, they could take it out. And they lose and 36 men die. And Joshua's on his face crying out going, oh man, everybody's going to hear about it. We should have stayed in Egypt. Everything's so horrible. Ah. And God says, get up. He said, there's sin in the camp. Somebody took something from Jericho they weren't supposed to. So he saw incredible success as he heard God's plan. He saw a horrible defeat when he didn't get the counsel of God. You see, right after Jericho, he should have been on his face, not because of horrible situation, but because he's so thankful for what God had done. His eyes should have been open going, Lord, I realize you are going to win the victory and we're going to be a part of it. The battle is the Lord's. And, and he could have just said, now what's the next step? And if you don't clearly tell me, I'm not moving. But that wasn't his heart. His heart was self-sufficient. His heart was full of pride. All right, what's the next place? Let's go for it. And they lose and 36 men needlessly die. So he saw it on both ends of the spectrum. God in his grace said, you've seen the victory where you've waited on me and heard from me. You've seen the defeat where you acted in your impulsive way on your own plan, in your own way. That's your wake-up call. Now, what's the next step? Number three, what do they do? They're in front now with the Gibeonites, and they don't seek the Lord. He should have been on his face again, saying, I don't know what to do with you. I've got to hear from God. And the Lord would have spoke to him, said, they're right around the corner. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're there to try to pull you down. That day came for being the carnal Christian. That day came from being a person who didn't seek the Lord diligently made all the difference in the world. The days before he didn't do it, it didn't bring him down completely. But this time, they were going to make a decision that would ultimately bring destruction to the nation of Israel and be a continual thorn in the flesh. Look over, if you would, to Exodus chapter 23, verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it shall surely be a snare to you. Listen to this, plain as day. Don't make any covenant with them, nor let them dwell in your land. What did Joshua just do? He made a covenant with them that they would dwell in the land, and he didn't realize it. Now you say, well, they deceived him, just break the covenant. No. There was even a greater curse if they broke the covenant once they made it. Once they made their vow, they had to keep it. Yes, their yea be had to yea, their nay had to be nay. They could not go back. So if they left the people in the land, they would ultimately be destroyed. If they broke the covenant, they would immediately be destroyed. 
And so they were stuck. And they realized that they had impulsively made that decision. It says in verse 18, back in Joshua 9, that all the congregation murmured against the rulers. And in verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. Make a note. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, years, hundreds of years after this, when King David was reigning as king, there was a famine in the land. For three years they had incredible hardship, and he cried out to God saying, God, why is this famine in our land? And God said, because when Saul was a king before you, he attacked the Gibeonites. And that's why now I'm bringing the consequence against you. So they went to the Gibeonites and said, what do you want? And they said, give us seven men from Saul's lineage that we could hang. And they hung them. And then the curse was lifted and there was no longer a famine in the land. So we see that this covenant Joshua made... In the book of Joshua, or in the book of Judges, they began to be infiltrated. They were seduced to worship their God, just as God said, and they were ultimately taken captive by the enemy. On the whole, they were constantly a thorn in the flesh. They had to let these people live there, even though they were a pollution, and cause continual harm. So what did God say in verse 21? The ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. And Joshua called them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell near us. Now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your land, in your hands. Do with us as seems good and right to you to do. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord and the place which he chose even to this day. So God said, okay, I love you guys. and I'm going to have mercy on you. And I'm going to make the best possible situation out of the situation I can. Not my perfect will, but in my permissive will. You, have, you made a covenant. They're going to have to live there. And we'll just make it so they are woodcutters and water carriers for ultimately it would be Jerusalem. They're about six miles northwest of Jerusalem is where this area was at. And God turned it around so they became servants unto God's people. But like I said, ultimately, they would pollute the people and bring them down uh, even into captivity. There's those people that we're warning today to say, yes, there's that frontal attack of Satan, but be careful of the compromising attack as he slithers in through the crack in the back door. You barely knew the door was even open, but it was enough for him to get in. Some of you, it's too late. You've made commitments that now it would be wrong for you to get out of them. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says, 
Don't marry a non-believer. How do you, O husband, know if you can win your wife? How can you, O wife, know if you can win your husband? Don't marry a non-believer, but if you've married one, don't break up with them. Make the best go of it. Now, if the non-believer doesn't want to dwell with you because you're a Christian, let them go. You're free to remarry. But if they're willing to stay with you, you stay with them and be the best wife or the best husband you can be. And all of us here today could tell our horror stories of where people began to compromise, people began to live that lukewarm Christian life, and days went by and it didn't seem to have any effect, but you got to remember one day like a domino does hit into the next day. And eventually they woke up one morning and in an hour, in a minute, in an instance, they made a commitment, they made a decision that spiraled them into a decade, two, three, 30, 40 years of continual hardship and difficulty. All can go back to that they weren't strong in the Lord. They weren't ready for that day of the wiles of the devil. They didn't understand that life is very, very real and can be very, very wonderful or very, very hard. And so we learn today from Joshua and the Gibbonites to not lean on our own understanding, to not look with our eyes and with our own senses and say, that's enough, but to ask counsel of the Lord. Now, how often as we as believers, how often and how are we to seek the Lord's counsel? The Bible makes it clear in Isaiah chapter 5, or chapter 50, that it's to be every single day. Turn over there, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 50, a verse that we're all well acquainted with, a verse that God's spoken very deeply to my heart. And this is Jesus speaking in his lifetime. And notice here the concept of seeking the counsel of God every day. In verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him is weary. He awakens me how often? Morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. He awakens my ear to receive counsel every day. Isaiah 9 says, And a son was given unto us, and that son would be to us what? The great counselor. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been given unto us to be the great counselor. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I only speak as I hear the Father speak. I only do as I see the Father do. Jesus said, I live because of the Father. You live because of me. As Jesus looked to his Father to be the great counselor every day, so now we look into Jesus to be our great counselor morning by morning. Look at verse 7 there. For the Lord God will, number one, help me. Therefore I will not be, number two, disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, which is a Hebrew expression. I'm not going to change this pattern. We have the uh, saying, you know, it's fixed in stone or it's fixed in concrete. This is the same expression. It's unmovable. If you try to move it now, it'll bust it to pieces. You can't move it. And he's saying, I've set my heart and determination God's going to help me. I'm not going to be disgraced because I've set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Number three, God wants to be your help. Number two, you won't be disgraced. Number three, you won't be ashamed. How? If you set your face like flint and say, 
as Jesus clearly told us, we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the first thing is to realize, yes, we are to receive counsel every day from God. And the thought of going out in the midst of your day without first receiving counsel, to see and to look and to experience, to wake up in the morning going, ah, I feel good. Oh, I got my plan for the day. I know all the things I need to get done. And you, you know, in self-sufficiency say, the word for today is be happy. All right, I'm going to go on my day, you know. Or in your self-sufficiency say, I'm okay and the world's okay. All is right. Let's go, you know. No. Be careful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are the people that are not going to end up in a tailspin downward in agony and, and difficulty and hardship. And then also in Ephesians chapter 5, or Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, how do we protect ourselves against the devil, that roaring lion and that slithery snake? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to verse 14 now that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie and wait to deceive like the Gibeonites. But speaking the truth in love, and sometimes the truth is hard to hear, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What's the answer? Is number one, every day we would receive directly from the Lord in the word, in prayer, as God would waken us, as he would give us that strength morning by morning to receive counsel from him. Secondly, to receive counsel, where? From the preaching of the word. You are all wise for being here today. Because there's a childishness, there's a lack of maturity in all of us that will be taken away. And a maturity, a unity of faith, a building up in the body that happens through the preaching of the word. So we're no longer tossed to and fro. So we're no longer tricked by the devil. And then after we hear the word of God, what do we do? We minister to one another. It's so important that you don't just come and hear the Bible preached, but now that you get involved with one another, get involved in the lives of each other. How? All types of ways through the ushering ministry or the kids' ministry or being in a home fellowship, going down to the orphanage, the women's ministry, the men's ministry, the prayer ministries. It goes on and on and on. There's more opportunities than there are people. But the idea is, is that as you're serving, as you're being that joint, that ligament, every part doing its share, causing the growth in the body, it's not only a protection for you, which we all need, 
but it's also a growth for you and a growth for others that we all need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Don't be as Joshua. Fall on in your face when things are spiraling downwards after AI going, oh God, you know, why are you allowing this? Fall on your face ahead of time and say, God, what are you wanting? What is the direction of life you're wanting me to go in? And don't use just your senses, but acknowledge the Lord and let him direct you in that smooth path, in that direct path. Is he a God of mercy and love? Absolutely. Will he make the best possible situation out of the mess that you've made? Yes, he will. He's not judging you. He's not condemning you. He loves you. He will do everything he can to make it within his permissive will the best of the situation. But that's not what you want, is it? Don't you want God's perfect plan for your life? I think so. It won't come from a sluggish, apathetic, lukewarm Christian life. It won't happen. It'll only come as you seek him diligently. As you seek his face morning by morning. As you don't forsake the gathering together in the brethren. But you come together with a true and a noble heart. Worshiping the Lord. Hearing from God and ministering to one another. That's where the protection and that's where the fruitfulness will be. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And we do ask that there would be a maturing within us today through the preaching of your word. And Lord, we know clearly you're speaking to many people here today. As in your grace, like with Joshua, you gave some wake-up calls. So this sermon today is a wake-up call to some sluggish, apathetic, carnal, lukewarm people who are born-again believers. Some aren't. But either way, hardship, difficulty, that spiraling downward is getting ready to happen because they're not hearing from you. They're not receiving from you. They're making covenants with the Gibeonites around them. And you're going to make it so their yea has to be yea, even though it's going to bring hardship and possibly even destruction in some areas of their life. Lord, help us now. If there's any in that situation, speak deeply. Let that word be a sharp two-edged sword piercing them deeply today to waken out of their sleep, to rise from their dead and let you give them light today that they can know what your will is and walk in that will. Speak to us today, Lord, we ask. Glorify yourself and your people who have heard this word in Jesus' name, amen.